0: In case you didn't notice, and um, perhaps you're not up on a few of these things, in, in a uh, city, a small town in Kentucky, there is a Bible college called Asbury. And uh, what happened was they had a chapel service on February the 8th, and afterwards there was kind of worship that had followed. And I believe that that worship service is still continuing even this time, I know that they had to take it off campus to another place, and so at one point there were thousands of people, uh, kind of gathering from different universities and things, wondering what was happening, taking place, and and uh, you had to wait for hours and hours to be able to get into a service or or to become part of it, and and it appears that God is really doing uh, something in the midst there. Now, many of you may not know that in 1970. Um, A revival took place at that same university and it was so incredibly powerful that it spread throughout the United States incredible things that had happened. Uh, you can read some of the accounts that had taken place or watch a few things that were there and some th- some accounts that had happened in there. There's was, there was just people, Bible college teachers, saying, I, I don't even know if I'm serving God. There was such a, level, certain, a heavy level of repentance that had happened amongst the people. And, and it was just spontaneous and the presence of God moved and it kind of spread. And, and I find that it is funny that, that in the midst of what is happening today, there is a movie which is called The Jesus Movement, and it is actually at the movies right now, if you have a chance to take advantage of it, talking about a revival that happened in California. It really, it really is incredible. The revival that happened in Asbury happened in February. The, the, the first one. The other one happened in February. I don't know if that has anything to do with the month. I've come to realize that I have become a student uh, of revivals. To, to understand what was taking place and some of the similarities, the Robert Evans Welsh Revival that took place, which kind of, kind of landed in, in, in the States upon Topeka, Kansas, and eventually the Azusa Street Revival, which had taken place, in 1857, there was this guy named Jeremiah Lamphere. And he was a, a, a pastor, and he invited businessmen to come to a prayer meeting that was supposed to be weekly, but after after a week, it became daily, and all of a sudden, thousands of people were showing up every day in New York at lunchtime for this prayer meeting, and, and there's powerful things that happened. It just spread like wildfire. Ellen Hebden, the Hebden Mission that happened in, in Toronto, uh, what we saw in Asbury, and a number of the times, things that happened, taken place, there's so many things that we have to... And, and I think any person who says, well, that's not for me, it's kind of crazy, don't you think? All of us want to see revival. All of us want to have this take place. And, and so, you know, sometimes there is a revival. Sometimes there's a thing which is just a time of refreshing. And, and sometimes it is just a thing which is called renewal. The biggest one is the thing which is called an awakening, where God just moves sovereignly. And so this week, we are going to be doing a podcast on revival. Maybe you have some questions. Maybe there's some some things about it. I think that there's ingredients to revival. I think that all of them are sovereign. They can't be produced by man. It's the time when God shows up and God directs. I think sometimes there are costs. I have seen times where there was the beginnings of a revival breaking out. But when the people realized the cost of the revival, then they decided to not go forward with it. There's no such thing as a low-maintenance revival. No thing. And so with that, we wanted to try and share a podcast that we're going to be kind of doing this week. And if there's any interest, please uh, uh, join that or keep an eye on for it. If you have any questions, email the church and, and uh, we will certainly try and answer uh, those questions. So along those lines, I wanted to talk about a series over the next few weeks. And it is based upon the fact that there are times in my studies where I have looked at the scriptures and found that there in the New Testament were statements that were made about Old Testament characters and it characterized within a statement or within a verse the legacy of that particular individual. So there were things that were said about them that summarized them in one or two statements and I thought it was kind of interesting how the the New Testament kind of reveals lessons that they had learned from the Old Testament. Things that they did well, so things that we can learn from from what they did well, and sometimes the best best lessons that we learn are from are from lessons that from failures that other people had. So, so I kind of wanted to talk about this, and I wanted to kind of focus today on the legacy of Lot, and to beware of a thing which is called spiritual osmosis. Now, for those of you who are in high school, I have no need to. to to Define to you what osmosis is, we all remember grade nine high school and that whole lesson, our lesson on osmosis, do we not? Of course we do. I don 't even need to mention it. But for those of you who didn't, osmosis is that process with which a solvent or a liquid comes against a, a, a permeable thing, something which is kind of solid, and over a length of time, that water or that liquid or something is absorbed in and through that membrane or whatever. It is the process of how sometimes things will leak through. And sometimes it's gradual. Many times it's gradual. It's like an unconscious assimilation. I believe that there's a thing which is called spiritual osmosis. That you become like the environment that you exist in. That slowly what happens is if you are in a world, if you're in an environment where the things are not good. That if you're not careful and if you're not diligent, eventually that environment takes over you. Spiritual osmosis happens positively as well as negatively. You read Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. It says, whatsoever things are true or honest are of good report. You know, whatever is lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise... Think on these things. You slowly become what you submerge yourself into, whether this is good or bad. I think it was either R.C. Sproul or A.W. Tozer in his book. I can't remember exactly if it it was Knowing God or Knowledge of the Holy, a classic book. And there's a statement that, that he made as I read that book like 25 years ago. He said this, A boat is supposed to be in the water, but heaven help the boat in which the water gets in to it. That makes sense, doesn't it? And a perfect example of this spiritual osmosis, this, 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 this danger, is seen in the book of Genesis in the story of Lot. But it is mentioned in Second Peter. Peter mentions something about Lot. And he kind of gives a bit of a direction that we learn something through the life of Lot. And so if you have your Bibles, open it to 2 Peter chapter 2. Or if you have your Bible apps, please open up your Bible apps and, and turn to that. Now, I'm going to be reading from the King James Version, just because I like the way the terminology goes. And uh, it is the way that when I was a kid, I memorized this passage of Scripture. Um, the thing is, the context of what is happening in Second Peter is the fact that Peter is saying, there are some false prophets among you. And they suddenly lead people astray. And that there will be judgment for people who lead innocent followers away from Jesus. Judgment is a part of our faith. It's not a popular one. It's one we don't like to talk about. But the fact remains that there is judgment. That there is a place which is called hell. And many times we don't talk about it, especially today. But it's something which is absolutely important for us to understand. That God judges our sin. And then when people rebel against God, that, that there is a place which is called hell. And we need to do everything we can to avoid it. And, and it should motivate us to warn our friends and our family. And if you don't tell your lost friend about hell, can you actually say that you're his friend or her friend at all? So heaven is there and, and, and hell is an important thing because it is the thing that causes us to realize why Jesus actually came to the cross. The good news of the gospel is this, heaven is not the default, hell is. We are bound for a lost eternity and we had no hope other than the good news of the cross. Jesus dying on the cross allowed a price to be paid so that we could accept Jesus and have eternity in heaven. That's the gospel. If you're here, if you're online and you're listening the importance of the gospel is the fact that there is a hell that we need to avoid. And and Peter begins to talk about this. And he gives examples. He talks about the angels that sinned. He talks about Noah at the time of building the ark. And he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And here we begin to find out about this interesting Old Testament character named Lot. And this is what it says. 2 Peter 2, verses 6-8. to It said... And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overflow, making them an end unto those who should live ungodly. And then it says, and verse 7 says, And deliver just Lot, it says, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. And verse 8 goes on to say, For that righteous man, dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their... Unlawful deeds. If you heard or remember this passage, just kind of wave to me. There's lots of veterans in here. You kind of have read that passage before. I find it's interesting that he uses the term vexed. The New International Version doesn't. As a matter of fact, most other versions don't use the word vexed. I just kind of thought it was interesting. They use the word um, oppressed. They will use uh, they will use the term um, distressed, tormented. The fact is this: the word vexed is used twice in this passage of scripture, but there are two different Greek words which are represented to mean it. Kateranomenon is the one. Kateranomenon. Say that ten times fast. Kateranomenon. Kateranomenon. it. Anyways, and the reality of that meaning is to be someone who is overwhelmed. Someone who's heavy loaded, it is just it is just oppression. Probably may mean the correct word. The other word is Eb Salmonen, Salmonen, and that one's different. It actually talks about being tormented. Talks about the extreme levels of torment, and this is the story of Lot. This is what followed him. He was tainted. It was probably unnoticeable. He would probably have thought it was inconsequential, but it wasn't. It was a slow infiltration. The world which he existed in absorbed him. And I'm left to ask myself, if I look at this verse, is are we in the same position today? Are we in danger? Are we being tormented by the environment that we choose to allow ourselves to live in? For those of you who don't know the story of Lot, it's an interesting one. Kind of starts with God calling Abraham, and Abraham is going to the promised land, and his dad, uh, Terah, comes with him, and his brother, Haran, comes with him as well. And so on the journey, something had happened, and it said that Haran died. Haran is Abraham's brother. And Terah was so heartbroken from it that he traveled a little while to a city called Haran, which is the name of his son. And it says that he died in Haran. It's kind of a double meaning there. And Haran, when he had died, left a son, which his name was Lot. And so Abraham kind of takes Lot with him. Now the Bible basically says, as we get into Genesis chapter 13 and 14, and I encourage you to read the story, it says that that Abraham became rich in cattle and in silver and gold. The literal term there. Meant heavy. He was heavy in cattle and he was heavy in gold and silver. This is the first time in the Bible that they mention riches through gold and silver. First time at all. It's kind of interesting. So we see this environment that is brought up to as they are traveling to the promised land. And we begin to learn a few lessons. And if you could give me a couple minutes. Let me teach you and and show you a couple things that the scripture says about Lot. The The first thing that he says is this, that you need to be aware of the cult of fantasy over fulfillment. The story of Lot and Abraham goes like this. They were so wealthy, things were going so well for them that there was too much... Too much success taking place and not enough room to the point where there was conflict between Lot's crew and, and Abraham's crew. And and so Abraham in his wisdom says, listen, we don't have to fight. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go to this place, I'll go to that, that place. You choose. And so what, what Lot does is he looks and the Bible says in in Genesis chapter 13 verse 10, he says, Lot looked and he saw the well-watered plains of Sodom. Hey, this is probably the better choice. If I look with my natural eyes, this is probably the best thing to do. I can feed my sheep. I can make sure that they're well-watered. And, uh, and that. the other thing is this. When it said the well-watered plains of Sodom, that was giving indication of the fact that he had to go into an environment which was not a good one. That there was sin, that there was evil. And so what happened was he made a logical choice, and he made a shrewd business choice, but it was not a shrewd soul decision, was it? And sometimes the logical choice is not the best choice when it comes to living a life which is sold out to God. And the temporal advantages blinded him to the spiritual and eternal consequences. If you read on in that passage of scripture, two verses later, and, and it doesn't tell you the space of time in between those two verses. He cho- chooses to go towards the well-watered plains of Sodom. And then two verses later says, and Sod, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. In other words, every time he woke up in the morning, he looked over the city of Sodom. Not only was he chosen there, he becomes just outside of the city. The very first, next verse says this. The people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. There's a clue there. He said we kind of hear that there's a lawlessness to Sodom. And there was some type of an appeal. that is, There was something that he thought, there's something good, there's something entertaining. Hey, I'm not going in there, I'm just outside. The reason I'm there is because that's who I trade with the most and it's easier for us to do business. There's all kinds of reasons, Then we hear again in chapter 19 when the angels come to meet with Lot that he's at the city gate. What does that mean? Well, usually the city gate is reserved for people who are on the city council. The third time we really hear about Lot, not only is he in Sodom, he very well could have been the mayor of Sodom at that particular time. And so it is interesting, if Lot is tormented or oppressed, why doesn't he just, why does he just get out? Why does he stay? And there's lots of reasons that you can think of, but the one thing that keeps coming to me was that he chose the fantasy over the fulfillment. The fantasy is that mental picture that we all have in our head that thinks we will be happy with or will be successful with. He saw things that were best for his sustenance, but not what was best for his soul or for his family's soul. It leaves us with the question, when you make decisions, is it best for your sustenance or is it best for your soul? Men, as you make decisions for your family, are those decisions based on what is best for the soul of your family or is it for that thing that will advance you ahead? Will it be for that idea that money is going to make me happy, that notoriety is going to make me happy, that acceptance is going to make me happy? Ladies, do the choices that you make deal with what you think will make you fulfillment or what will really make you fulfilled? Maybe you're here and you're going to college and you're choosing a career and you realize that the career has risk to it. And you say, well, I'll be Okay. As long as I kind of stay away from it, I know I have to be part of it. Are you choosing the well-watered plains of Sodom? Are you pitching your tent towards Sodom? First lesson is beware of the, the fantasy of fulfillment. There's another lesson, which is this. There are repercussions of being in the wrong neighborhood. If you read on in Genesis chapter 14, there is a war that all of a sudden happens with other kings and and the kings of Sodom. And in the scripture, if you read Genesis 14, basically says this. That the the war against Sodom caused Sodom to lose. And he says that they took all of them. And it says in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 14, that Sodom was caught up with them. Because he was in Sodom. All of a sudden we find out there. Now a lot of times the people say he really wasn't in Sodom. But he was close enough to Sodom. That he was swept up as well. It's like Brandon and Chemney. Where do you live? Kemney where's that? Well Brandon. Now I know I'm making all the Chemney people listening at this time. Very angry with me. I don't live in Brandon. I live in Chemney. If I'm driving to Winnipeg. And I hit Headingley. I consider myself in Winnipeg. Everybody does, except for the people in Headling. they'll say, no, it's Henley, right? We understand that whole thing. The issue, the issue is this, that when you're close, you are affected. You don't have to be involved for sin to kill you. You just have to be in the neighborhood. It's not good to be in the suburb of sin. There's a backsplash effect there's a cast off effect. There's a saying which says this, bad company corrupts good character. Well that's not just a saying, that's what actually the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 33 and 34. And it almost sinks them, which leads kind of to another lesson. The lesson is this, it is good to have a rescuer. It is good to be a rescuer. Because we read on in that story that Abraham finds out what's happening and takes his people and delivers Lot at that particular time. It's wonderful that that takes place. But it's not the first time that Abraham rescues Lot. Lot was rescued three times by Abraham. The first time was through adoption. Abraham's uh, Abraham's brother dies and, and all of a sudden Abraham takes his nephew with him. Didn't have to. Especially in that culture, he didn't. Not only that, he rescues him physically through the the time that we're talking about right now. And lastly, maybe even most importantly, if you take a look at Genesis chapter 18, God reveals to Abraham that he is going to put judgment upon upon Sodom and Gomorrah. and, And Abraham begins to pour out his heart before God, calling on God to have mercy upon those who might still be righteous, and that was the beginning of him being. That, that, that Lot was rescued by the intercession of the godly Abraham. It's good to be rescued. Have you ever been rescued? You ever had, found yourself in a place of your own doing and some person in their mercy somehow comes in? Would be, I think it will be amazing when we get to heaven how many times people's prayer rescued us. Certainly true, isn't it? You take a look. Nathan rescued David. Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, rescued Moses. A man named Ananias rescued Paul when he was blind. Barnabas later rescued Paul as the fact that nobody would accept Paul except for Barnabas. The whole story of the gospel is about being rescued. I think that God calls us to be rescuers. I think we all need an Abraham in our life. And we all need to be in Abraham, don't you think? It's good to have a rescuer. Another lesson is this rescue has its repercussions. The fact is, as you read the story of, of, the, of the rescuing of Lot, you come to the realization that Lot lost everything. Everything that Lot had and everything that he thought would give him fulfillment was gone, it was gone. The thing that he probably lost most of all was intimacy with God, to actually know God. Here's another lesson that says this: that your tainted walk will prove fatal to others. You ever have a chance? Read read Genesis chapter 19 and 20 again. After Abraham intercedes. God sends two angels to go into to, uh, Sodom. And, and for some reason, Lot recognizes them, that they're not just people. These are angelic beings. And so what happens is he takes them in before, they, are, before they, they get injured. He invites them to the house. And all of a sudden, the people show up and said, Listen, we want to have sex with these guys. And so what, what, what Lot says is, Listen, folks don't do that. Don't dishonor me. I have two virgin daughters. You can have your way with them. This is kind of crazy. And so what ends up happening is that the angels pull him into the house and they say, get your stuff and get together. Verse 16 of of Genesis chapter 19 says this, and when Lot hesitated, what are you hesitating for? It's not just that these are just two people. These are two angels. And we saw these angels strike people with blindness. What happens there? What is going on in his head? I asked myself that question. At what point when you say, hey, you can have my virgin daughters? Is there not a point where you say, I think that things are starting to slip in my life? I think I am feeling a little bit off to the side here. I don't know. Maybe there are some things that have entered into my life that shouldn't be there. But his family was oblivious to their degradation. Makes me ask myself, could it be true that the same thing happens to me? Spiritual compromise and daily attack not only torments you and oppresses you, I think it makes you numb. I think it blinds us. I think it desensitizes us. And I think it causes us to accept our surroundings. I look at the story of Lot and I ask myself, do I accept lifestyles and sin that I never did 10 years ago? Do I watch things on television or on the computer that I would have never have watched a few years ago? Do I browse media About things that I shouldn't be or have no business doing. Do do things shock me? Are the things that that no longer shock me that did a few years ago? As you read Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 15 where it says that they had lost their ability to blush. Have we lost our ability to blush? Am I less hungry for spiritual refreshment? Has my devotion for God changed? Is there a callus on the exterior of my heart as it developed? Are there things that made my heart break for God? And as I take a look at my life now, do they still cause my heart to break? God has called us to not be caught up in this thing and how easy it is. So men, if you are here, be men of passion for God, men of conviction, men of example, men of leadership, men of prayer, men of integrity, men of righteousness, because when you are, it will rub off on your family. And whatever way, I remember, I remember Dick uh, Bombay, one of, the, one of the founders of the Pentecostal movement with his family. I remember him preaching one time and saying, Husbands, love your wives and love your kids and be the head of your home and be the head of your family. And if you do, they'll love you for it. And if you don't, they'll despise you for it. Then we need to be men and women of integrity to so take a look And ask ourselves, have we drifted some far away? Last lesson is this. There's a downward spiral to compromise. The most popular part of the story of Lot is his wife. Jesus tells us in in his ministry to remember one person. He says, remember Lot's wife. And the thing with, with Lot's wife was that they could take her out of Sodom, but they could not take Sodom out of her. And so what happens is, not only does Lot jeopardize his soul, but he causes the life of his family to be lost. Lot becomes, later on, as you go on in the story, he becomes a victim of rape and incest at the hands of his daughters. Well, where would they learn that? Well, they had been living in Sodom for a number of years. I've come to realize, folks, that incest is not as rare as what we think it to be. That there's very much a deep level of shame and there's certainly a deep level of of hurt in in that In people who are even here, maybe those who are listening online, that God knows exactly what you're going through, that God will get you through those times and maybe if you're bearing the scar, God wants to heal you from that. But all of a sudden we just see a downward spiral. The offspring that that these girls have become the Moabites and the Ammonites. And we see throughout history, the Hebrew history, that they were affected by these two people. There is a downward spiral to compromise. Beware of spiritual osmosis. Don't let the world absorb you. I think that God is looking for a surrendered church, a surrendered follower. He is looking for a sacrificial follower. He is looking for a seeking follower. I think that all of us, as we read about headlines of a revival that's happening in Asbury or Pensacola, Or wherever we see it. The prayer that is breathed is this. God let it happen here. God let it happen. In my life. But perhaps the best. Definition that I have heard. Of revival. Was this. Revival is taking a piece of chalk. And drawing a big circle. And standing in the middle. Of that circle. And saying God. Change absolutely everything that is in this circle we need to revive we need revival we need to see it and I desire to see that happen here I pray that God will sovereignly move but the far better part of revival is not the time of refreshment and worship that we experience the far greatest part of revival It's where we get to a point where we don't care what anybody thinks and we come before an altar and we say, God, change me. God, I am sick of everything that I'm holding on to. So I come to this altar and I lay it all before you, asking God that you will move, asking God that you will have your way in me. Amen. God, I just pray that you'll move by your spirit. Just praying, Father, for the presence of the Holy Spirit to move at this time. Praying, Father, that you will just convict us, Lord. But not for the sake of us feeling bad. But for the sake that you want to prepare us for revival. That we get to a point where we are so unhappy with the things that we have let in that we fall on our face before God, and we say, God, change me. God, make me the man that you want me to be. God, make me the woman that you want me to be. Allow the presence of God to move in our lives. Allow the presence of God to flow through us, Father, in a real way, because, Lord, that repentant heart is the fertile soil for you to revive your people. So I just pray that upon this place right now, God. I pray it, Father, upon your people. I ask, God, that you will do great things. I pray, Father, for the presence of the Holy Spirit to come right now, O God, as the word of God is preached, Father. May you be lifted up in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together if we can. There is fellowship afterwards. We got lots of ice cream. And we won't run out. If we do, I will personally go out and get more of you if you are spending time at the altar. I'm just saying this, the altars are open. Allow the Spirit of God to move in your life. I don't know whether it has something to do with what we preached on today or anything else. We want these altars to be open. We wanna see the Spirit of God move. And so let the Lord bless you. I just pray a blessing upon this congregation. I pray for the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I pray for a spirit of unity amongst your people. I pray for, for there to be just the, the presence of God that can only come from you moving God. So have your way in our midst, Father. Bless the, the food and the fellowship afterwards. But for those who want to pray, God, I just ask, God, that your hand will be with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Glenn.